Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. We are here today with uh, myself, your host, Yiman Chen, and co-host... Susan Anthony, hello. Hey Susan, how's it going? Well, I have to say I'm pretty excited about this interview today. Yeah, I've had a super awesome day. I got like a accidental poutine for lunch, and I won a free T-shirt earlier. So, I mean, nothing could go wrong. <laughs> I'm I'm interested in the subject of the interview today because there may be something I'm certain creature I'm totally obsessed with, and we get to talk about it for half an hour with you listening. Oh, totally. So today we're joined by a PhD student in history, Carla Joubert. Carla, hello. Hi. So Carla, I mean, one of the things I love about GradCast is that we get to meet people from all over the university, and I want to single you out today as someone (laughs) who, you know, just sort of demonstrates to me the variety and the diversity of research we do here. You're in the history department, but your area of research is... Sharks. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, It just sort of happened... It both happened randomly um, and sort of predictably at the same time, like retrospectively, I think that this was always going to happen. But a year ago, I didn't know that it was always going to happen or a year and a half ago. So I studied um, like military history and identity formation in my undergraduate studies. And then in November, in November uh, last year, I I literally had a beer at the grad bar. And I was like, I just kind of want to study sharks. (laughs) I just want to study shark history instead. (laughs) Okay, could you explain for us how is it that a history student studies sharks? So I don't to say that I study sharks is a bit of an oversimplification simplification. I study um, shark human interaction and the scientific research that develops out of shark human interaction. So I don't study um, I have to be comfortable with the biology of sharks, but I am not a biologist and I'm not a scientist. I study how did scientists talk about sharks at the turn of the 20th century in the 19 teens when elasmobranchic theology, the study of shark skates and rays, um, became a focused and professional field during sort of the professionalization of the sciences at the turn of the century. So it's, it's how do we talk about sharks? What questions do you ask about sharks and why do we ask those particular questions? How are we shaped by a cultural history of sharks that is older than the scientific history of sharks? Well, that's really interesting because obviously sharks have been around for very long, millions of years, and Mm -hmm. we've known about them for ever. ever. As long as there have been people, they have known about sharks. Yeah, (laughs) so how did people, you say there's sort of a turning point in the early 1900s, so how did people feel about them before? So, it's... The world is a big place, and different spaces <laughs> yeah. have different opinions about sharks. Mm-hmm. While some uh, cultures and some indigenous groups revered sharks and created um, deities out of sharks, particularly in Western cultures, those rooted um, and colonies rooted in like the British tradition, they tended to have 
either few opinions about sharks or to think of sharks as um, something that threatened industry um, or something that they were curious about but didn't really understand. So like a lot of the language about sharks prior to the 19-teens focuses on how sharks pose a threat to the fishing industry um, on coastal waters and less on how sharks pose a threat to people. There is an understanding that they pose a threat to people, but the extent of that threat isn't fully grasped out yet. There's there's suspicion, there's anecdotal, anecdotal evidence that sharks um, bite people, that sharks can fatally bite people, but a lot of scientists actually kind of dismiss that and say, yeah, maybe it was a shark, but maybe it was just like a creature that we don't know yet because the ocean's a big place. Sharks, they dun, even... Dun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and they like sea sharks... Um, it's actually like too fragile and having too oh, yeah. too weak of a jaw structure to be able to like sever the limb of a human being. So there isn't a significant fear uh, that that sharks are something that we need to be thinking about all the time when we're in the water. And then at the same time that we start to sh- study sharks in a scientific capacity, we're not really studying shark human interaction. We're studying their anatomy. We're studying prehistoric sharks. Uh, we suddenly have these incidents that happen in northern hemisphere waters we, where humans die after they're bitten by a shark, and we're just like, oh, hell. <laughs> um, we had no idea. What do we do now? And then we start to ask different questions, and we start to ask, how do people interact with sharks? Can they actually kill us? What do we need to know that we don't know now? All right, so you're saying that, you know, in the prehistory, we didn't know much about them, anything, yeah. considering them so fragile, and there was a tipping point. Yeah. And that's a f- big focus of what you do, this tipping point. Now, what was it? What is the story if, if uh, well, listeners haven't heard it before? So I feel, like, I feel like sometimes it's hard for me to understand if I think that something is common knowledge because <laughs> I've always been interested in it um, or if it's like something that I just happen to know. And so what I wrote for my master's research project was on these shark bite incidents that happened in New Jersey in 1916. So in New Jersey in 1916, um, there were sh- five shark bite incidents that happened from July 1st to July 12th. Um, so over a span of 12 days in a period or in a distance I think separated by maybe 50 kilometers five people were bitten by sharks and four of those people died and the fifth person um he had like his ankle bitten he was basically fine um, <laughs> walk so, it off kind of yeah thing. yeah I think I think he like might have I don't think that much happened um, people were built tougher back then yes yeah. um I think he was a young boy um but so these shark bite incidents are important because while Two of the fatalities happen in saltwater. Two of the fatalities happen in Matawan Creek, which is um, an estuary that comes out of Raritan Bay. Uh, And Matawan Creek has a higher salinity than you would necessarily find in, say, Lake Ontario, um, but it is still fairly low salinity. And so people panic because... Prior to this occurrence, the only shark that they knew of that could go into fresh water was the Carcharinus nicaraguensis, which lived in Lake Nicaragua, which we now know is a bull shark, which we now know actually goes into salt water and fresh water at the same time. But at the time, we thought it was like locked in a fresh water space, that they could not traverse that space. So they were feeling like they weren't safe where they thought they were. Something happening yeah. to them 
rather than, you know, something that always happens to others. Right. So um, it's it's important that the attacks happen in New Jersey because while people had been bitten by sharks and there were, like, anecdotal accounts of shark bite incidents happening in the southern hemisphere, a lot of the scientific research on sharks is happening in the northern hemisphere, and in particular institutes like the American Museum of Natural History um, and the Smithsonian are conducting research on sharks that says, like, yeah, these, like, southern hemisphere people say that they've been bitten by sharks, but what do they really know? We don't have to worry about it. And even if they are bitten by sharks, those sharks never come into northern waters. So people who live in the northern hemisphere, sort of um, north of North Carolina, don't actually have to worry about the fact that they might be attacked by a shark or bitten by a shark. And so when they are bitten by a shark, right near the American Museum of Natural History, where we have really prominent um, early elasmobranchic theologists, those elasmobranchic theologists are like, how do we explain this? What do we tell the public that we have promised like time and time again don't have to fear sharks, that sharks not only aren't capable of harming them, but even if they are, all the scary sharks are far away because clearly the scary sharks are right here and they're killing people in a span of 12 days. So what do we do now? And so that's, I think, I, I think now, maybe my opinion will change, but right now I think that is kind of a tipping point where the shark enters the consciousness of the American mainstream in a way that it hadn't before because people all over the country, like people in Philadelphia, people in Los Angeles, people in the, uh, the Midlands are responding because they were told that they don't have to fear sharks. They were told that sharks can't actually bite them. Now sharks are killing them and they're killing them in fresh water. And so... So people need answers, and that's where the scientists come in, and they stop doing the research that they're doing, which is um, uh, John Treadwell Nichols, one of the most famous uh, elasmobranchic theologists in the period who, like, studied the shark, actually studied tuna. He studied um, tuna and mackerel and things. He, he wasn't meant to be studying sharks, and he stopped because there was too much panic, and he was a really well-respected ichthyologist, and so he was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what's going on with the sharks, and that's when they start to study how do sharks interact with humans. It's not really how do humans interact with sharks. They don't ask um, a question that flows both ways. They think how do sharks um, see humans and consider humans um, potentially prey, and how do we mitigate against that threat? What do we do to stop them killing us? Okay, so like in a way, everything changed the day the shark attacked. And I mean, in terms of shark interaction, I, I guess that's like the first thing that comes to mind, right? At least these days, shark attacks. Is that sort of the change that happened there? Yeah, so definitely the thing that we start studying the most is shark-human interaction and shark-wildlife management. How do we manage how sharks treat us? And the immediate response is kill all the sharks. The immediate response is a government-mandated cull program, which of is... Of course. Which we're seeing a lot in Australia. Yeah, so... Um, what is it? Um, Western Australia, the province of Western Australia, recently had a culling program that was widely condemned because there's there's a lot of psychology about the concept of the cull that assumes the singular nature of a shark bait incident. It, it affirms a language that says one shark is responsible for what happened. That shark will do it again. Um, in order to find that shark, to kill that shark, we're going to kill all sharks that fit the definition of the shark responsible and like hope that we hit the target, knowing that it's difficult to find a moving target. Mm -hmm. um, and so the call program says if you just kill the, the criminal shark, then the shark bite incidents will stop. And it also says that sharks impose, uh, like, impose 
on human space, threaten human space, and we need to remove them from that human space. When the reality is that shark bite incidents need to be viewed in in the greater context of shark-human interaction. Every time you go in the water, um, if sharks inhabit that water, you are interacting with sharks, and those sharks choose as agents not to interact with you, um, not to bite you. And so if a shark chooses to bite a person, then we have to understand that potentially they're doing it because uh, they consider you prey, although this is very rare and very, very difficult to confirm uh, using the, uh, using sound scientific reasoning. Um, or they're curious about you, or potentially they consider you a threat to their space. They're territorial animals, and you, humans aren't small. Like, we think of ourselves as small when we think of jaws or whatever, but, but we are actually... Um, close to the size of many sharks. And it's, it's fair to consider that they might actually think that we're a threat. And there's recent research now that says it's very possible that before a shark bite incident happens, a shark is busy under the water trying to tell the human, like, could you please not be here right now? I am very upset. I am panicked. Oh, you're just going to keep swimming. No, that's fine. And then they get scared and then they react to that fear. So it's actually the shark who might be scared of you. Well, I guess that's, that's the thing, the, the bias in statistics. We're talking about the statistics bias. And I want you to tell us more about that because that's really interesting. Especially, we don't know about the shark-human interactions that we don't know about. Right, right. So, so, many t- so there, must have been, there must be so many times when the shark sees us and just goes... Just every, nothing happens. Yeah, so that goes that goes back to the fact that we fixate we fixate on the fear of being bitten by a shark. That becomes the only thing that we think about when we think about shark human interaction. But but of course. Um, Part of shark-human interaction is also like conscious decisions to swim with sharks. When people go um, shark cage diving, um, when they go diving in reefs, and they just like want to swim around black to reef sharks, um, and and the unconscious ones. Where, as I said, if you are in the water um, and sharks live in that water, guaranteed you are surrounded. Like there are sharks that swim near or around you, and you simply don't know because they have zero interest in you. So when we um, measure the statistics of shark bite incidents. Uh, you know, we tend to do this thing where we're like, sharks only kill 100 people in a year. Um, you know, I think I think it was mentioned, vending machines kill more people. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, of course, things like champagne corks, they would, you know. Falling out of bed? I am very afraid of champagne corks. Like, actually. They make I'm a loud terp- noise. I'm, yeah. I, like, cannot do it. Other people have to open champagne Bug bottles. Bug beds are dangerous. Yeah. I was going to say that. <laughs> Don't you know about the 1916 champagne attack? <laughs> <laughs> it's widely publicized. Yes. <laughs> the tipping point of the champagne. Yeah. But but so when we when we do those statistics, I like them on the one hand because they're trying to be like, look, other things kill people more often than sharks. But there's actually still a fundamental um, disconnect between the measurement of shark bite incidents um, and the measurement of shark-human interaction. So, like, Mm -hmm. you cannot measure just how many people go in the water versus how many people are killed by sharks. You have to measure how many times people go in the water and how many times those entrances into the water result um, in a a fatality or a shark bite. And so the reality of those statistics is that in a year, um, 10.5 billion um, uh, bathing incidents occur in spaces where there are sharks. So 10.5 
billion times in a year people enter the same space as sharks and out of those 10.5 billion times a hundred times people are bitten by sharks but we also need to change how we measure being bitten by a shark because when people hear bitten by a shark they think jaws they think like eating the guy who's falling off the edge of the boat or whatever um Leaping out of the water into the boat. Right. Finding the human, wanting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The anatomical movement of the shark in that film is actually quite accurate, but yeah. (laughs) They had some good, uh, good people, Ron and Valerie Taylor. The book yeah. is actually also very scientifically sound from the perspective of the behavior of the shark. Anyway, yeah, that's not it, the point. Yeah. <laughs> their, desire, their desire to eat canisters full of compressed gas, maybe not as Less much, accurate. Yes. Desire to eat humans, less accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so when we measure those hundred attacks, I, I, I can't... I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something ridiculous like 70% or 70 of the 100 bite incidents are minor bite incidents. And minor bite incidents are those incidents where you don't actually require medical care in the aftermath of the bite. Um, then another maybe 20 of those bite incidents are major bite incidents, which means that you require medical care from stitches to you've had a limb amputated. Um, and then... 10 in a bad year are fatal. So out of the 10.5 billion, you're dealing with 10 fatalities, which to me always just strikes me that it's 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 actually absurd how afraid we are of sharks. It's totally disproportionate to logic. And I understand that that's um, built in paranoia, but what I argue more than that is that it's built into... Um, a culturally embedded and scientifically uh, authoritative fear of sharks. So we feared sharks... Uh, scientists responded to our fear of sharks and said, it makes sense that you're afraid of some of these sharks. And then it spoke about other sharks that we shouldn't fear, but we stopped listening. We were like, yeah, yeah, white sharks are terrifying. Talk about that some more. And we didn't listen to what they were saying about literally the hundreds of other species that don't pose a significant threat to us. Okay, I I was reading through your... um NASA's research paper, and you had this really interesting quote in, the, in there. Uh, it went something like, that there is something peculiarly sinister in the shark's makeup. And is that, you know, something that contributes to our fear, our, like, lack of understanding? You brought up Jaws, and, like, one of the things that Quint, you know, the guy with the boat says, that, <laughs> you know, a shark has dead eyes, right? Sometimes yeah. it'll just look right at you. Don't. It's black. They're like doll's eyes until they roll over white and then you die. There are so many things that I need to respond to right now. <laughs> <laughs> the, f- the first I'm sorry. is that sharks are painted differently and many sharks have colorful eyes, pretty eyes. Dusky <laughs> sharks, for instance, have yellow eyes. They're very... So, okay, the eyes thing, false. <laughs> Another thing. Um, the other thing is the person that you're quoting is the person from my MRP that you're quoting um, is John Treadwell Nichols and Robert Cushman Murphy, who often wrote together on the sharks of uh, Long Island, New Jersey, and New York. Uh, and they're actually referring to, to how people view sharks, not necessarily like how culture views sharks, not necessarily how they do. And it touches on a theory that I have. I have not completed the research on this, but I'm going to. Um, and the, the theory is that we already have um, psychology studies that confirm that People tend to fear things that are pointy, tend to fear things that are, like, edgy. So you're afraid of spiders. Oh, come on. (laughs) Not you. (laughs) Not me. Spiders are edgy? They are. They've got their, their like, edgy legs. And then then we fear... Jaggedy. Sharks, we fear teeth that come from carnivorous animals, claws. That makes sense, right? Yeah, so there's Mm -hmm. this argument that it's instinctually bred for us to fear pointy things. But the thing is, 
I don't think that the shark is necessarily edgy. There are 516 species of shark or more or, or something like that. And when we think of shark, the thing that comes to mind is Jaws or this like classically edgy shark. They're the Requiem shark family. So the Requiem shark family are, are like our classic image of a shark. Basically, any shark that a person can name tends to be a Requiem shark um, or um, the Kirkaradon family, which is what, what white sharks are in. Um, and so... I want to do a study to see how capable people are of identifying a shark um, versus its pointiness. It's my pointiness to blobbiness um, study. And so this is in its infancy, and it's something that I'm working on um, with one of the in the department. And what it's going to do is you measure, um, you collect data on, say, 200 sharks that you can measure on a scale from... Um, one to ten, one being very blobby, so like a wooby gong shark, which no. is very blobby, um, and ten being your classic requiem shark, like a dusky shark or a white shark or a blue shark. Um, and then you, you scale all of them. Then you install um, a basic profile image of that shark. And then you turn that profile image of the shark into like a graph measurement of edginess. So you actually put a a dot in the center of the shark and you shoot out a, a radius of points and the more points it picks up the more end points on the shark the edgier the shark is measured as being so you actually like determine um, through digital research the actual edginess of the shark on average I don't, I don't just look at a shark and decide how edgy mm-hmm. I think it is I, like, I use this, this method to, to actually determine the pointiness of the shark and then you do um, a, a data scraping Thing on the internet where you, you download thousands of images of sharks and you download the names attached to those sharks and rather than having to like look through every picture of the shark, you find their pointiness rating using the same tool and if the pointiness rating matches up to the shark species that it is or matches up to um, something close to the shark species that it is, then the assumption is that people tend to correctly identify that shark. And so I'm going to look at how often people are capable of correctly identifying blobby sharks versus pointy sharks. And my assumption is, I don't know this yet, Mm -hmm. that people will be more capable of identifying pointy sharks because what we have taught what we have been taught to think of as a shark, both through the scientific um, over-interest in them and through a cultural bias, is to think of a shark as a pointy thing. When, in fact, there are hundreds of sharks that we would be embarrassed to say that we fear, but we don't feel that embarrassment when we say we fear sharks. When we say we fear sharks, we feel like it's a legitimate thing to say, even though, like, saying that you fear... Um, a rabbit shark or saying that you fear a lantern shark, sharks that grow no longer than 10 inches and live in the deep depths of the ocean is, is kind of absurd. If you do fear that shark, like, we need to talk. Like, we, we need to, you need, you need, there's something deeper going on. You're going to be afraid of more things than sharks. Yeah, yeah, you're going to be afraid of rabbits, perhaps. <laughs> like, um, and so, yeah, it's it's just about how do we market the shark as the pointy shark and how do we market the pointy shark as a danger and then how does that impact how we interact with sharks overall both in terms of conservation um, in terms of wildlife management uh, and and in terms of our own fear and in terms of our own willingness to enter the ocean well that's really awesome I I wanted to bring up also um, the recent paradigm shift 
Do you sense that there's a new shift into shark conservation? I hope so. <laughs> um, it's difficult. Again, it's difficult for me to measure because I feel like I'm at the center of these things a lot of the time. I surround myself with people who are interested in sharks and shark conservation. Yeah, of course. Um, but I think so. There are a lot of people or Elasmer Benchik theologists who are beginning to get large follower like followings on Twitter. So one of um, the most popular that I can think of is a guy named. David Schiffman, who's um, an ichthyologist down at the University of Miami in Florida. And he has, like, significant following and significant support from the public community um, who want to know what he's doing. And, like, he promotes conservation all the time. And so I think so. I hope so. Uh, but only time will tell. And frankly, right now, even though people are more interested in conservation, we're not seeing significant results in actually conserving sharks. We're seeing people who want to conserve sharks more. The public is maybe interested in conserving sharks more, but governments and fishing agencies are not. Okay, so I mean, in terms of conservation, like a term that I've heard brought up several times by other people is this idea of charismatic megafauna. (laughs) So things that... You know, uh, sort of that act as symbols or icons to mm-hmm. sort of rally public uh, sentiment mm-hmm. and political, you know, um, will towards. Mm-hmm. So things like the giant panda, which is you know very round, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> very cute. Uh, people want to save these things. Is there any way that you know we might be able to make the shark perhaps more charismatic or more likable in I that think, way? I think that people Finally. are already curious about sharks, already want to know a lot about them. It's just about shifting that curiosity away from fear and into something more constructive. So people used to seriously fear the killer whale and in that, the orca. And so that story that I told you in 1916, the first culprit, the first time that they thought something was responsible, they thought that it was an orca. And there was a major like PR campaign in the 70s to resurrect the image of the orca, to rehabilitate how we see it. And now we've got Free Willy and we're upset about um, the whale in Sea World, I can't Tilikum. Shamu. No, Tilikum. Tilikum. Yeah, it's a big deal. So now now the orca is untouchable. Everybody loves it and it's super cute and we love that it's like black and white and it reminds us of a panda. So theoretically it's impossible to imagine that can happen with sharks. But I think that that is possible. It just takes time. Well and uh uh, orcas or killer whales are very round. Yeah. yeah. Well, they've got they've got pointy fins and they've got caudal fins and, mm. and they've got little teeth and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it is easier. It does tend to be easier to, I think, <laughs> rehabilitate the rounder things. So we, we were talking but before this interview about Twitter and you mentioned Twitter again. That yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff. If people are interested in sharks and mm-hmm. want to know more about sort of positive aspects of sharks, mm-hmm. anything you'd recommend people to do? People should follow David Schiffman. He's okay. awesome. Um, and people should follow some O-Search sharks. So like O-Search tags sharks and then gives them Twitter personalities. And <laughs> the most famous one is Lydia Shark, but there's like an infinite number of Twitter sharks that you could follow. And it's stupid and it's silly and sometimes they talk to each other but it's also kind of cute and it's the first step is to start to think about sharks as more than just things that can bite you so when you do something silly like add a shark to your Twitter account suddenly a shark becomes like a thing that you can tweet at and they are really good at responding I've (laughs) tweeted I I went to New York and and Lydia no I think Mary Lee Shark was also in New York and I was like hey want to have lunch and she tweeted back and it was awesome so yeah silly things like that follow the sharks (laughs) Oh, awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, So that's about the end of our time today. Just remember, sharks are friends. (laughs) Not food. (laughs) Well, (laughs) food. And you're not food for them. Yeah.
That's there exactly right. Remember, the shark is just as afraid of you as you are of them. All right, so, um, yeah. GradCast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. We, of course, do this show every two weeks here on CHRW, and we love you guys for listening. But if you want to get more, because you actually only one in three GradCast episodes is recorded in this studio. If you want to get our podcast where we record way more than that, you can go to gradcastradio.ca and listen to them all. And this show will be up there in a number of weeks as well. Thank you, Carlos, so much for coming out. I know that Thank I you. harassed you for a long time to do this. <laughs> it was fun. And we'll, uh, we'll see you guys all next time. Swim safe. <laughs> That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.